So my wife Karen is down in uh, West Palm Beach this weekend with our daughter and her family. When I came in this morning from scraping the car off and shoveling the driveway, she had a text waiting for me. <laughs> Out for a walk on the intercoastal waterway. Sunny but cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. We're expecting our second granddaughter this week, so hopefully that will happen while she's down there. So, yes. Well, generally speaking, it's good to come out on top, isn't it? I mean, an Olympic athlete wants to stand on top of the podium. A hard-working student wants to be at the top of their class. An ambitious executive wants to climb to the top of the corporate ladder. A performer wants top billing. A physician wants to be tops in their field. When you have the house all picked up and the kids where they're supposed to be and you're making progress on your to-do list, you say, I'm on top of things. And that's a good feeling. Top dog, top 10, top 40, top of the heap. You get the idea. Generally speaking, it's good to be on top. But that's not always true in God's economy. Sometimes on this journey of faith, we need to be brought low, sometimes to some deep places. In fact, sometimes the best thing that can happen to a person is to hit bottom. This morning, we're going to meet a man who sank about as low as a person can possibly sink, literally. In fact, it looked as though it might be all over for him. But something happened to him in that deep place, something that turned his life around, that got his heart in a better place. And so whether you're feeling on top of the world right now or you feel like you're sinking like a stone, there are lessons to be learned from the runaway prophet named Jonah and his prayer from the deep. So we are in week number two of our study in this book of Jonah. We'll be in chapter two today if you'd like to be following along. Last week, we met Jonah, son of Amittai, a prophet, a good prophet, to the northern kingdom uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II about the 8th century B.C. And Jonah had a good career going as a prophet, faithfully proclaiming God's word, until God called him to a mission that he wasn't very excited about. And so he up and, and ran. Instead of going to Nineveh to preach against that city, he found a ship headed in the other direction for Tarshish. And he set sail. Now, he wasn't abandoning his faith exactly. He was just running from God's call, putting some distance between himself and God's voice. And we learned last week that we all do that sometimes. We, we all run. We, we find reasons to put distance between ourselves and God. And often it happens when he calls us to do something or be something we, we're not comfortable with, something we'd rather not do or be. And, and God lets us go. Even when we're putting our own souls at risk and other people's souls at risk, he, he lets us run. But he doesn't give up on us, we learned. He finds ways to get our attention, to call us back, to turn us around. In Jonah's case, he sent a storm to rouse his slumbering prophet. When that didn't work and Jonah still resisted, he he had Jonah thrown overboard. Jonah had decided he would rather die alone at sea than go with God to Nineveh. And so the sailors gave him the heave-ho overboard. 
And as he hit the water, splashing beneath the surface, came up, spluttering, gasping for breath, watching that ship disappear into the distance, it looked as though it was the end for him. But then something happened, something remarkable. Jonah was rescued. The chapter ends, verse 17, chapter 1. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So at this point, uh, the story raises a reasonable question. Is this really possible? Could a person survive inside a whale for three days? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you after last week Googled, can a person survive inside a whale? <laughs> I did, actually, and there's a lot of responses out there, actually. I even got a few emails from folks in the congregation on the matter, and this one I found most interesting. That's a picture of a whale shark, I'm told, its mouth gaping wide open, and on the surface of the water, you can see a tiny swimmer. Kind of makes you think twice about swimming in the ocean, doesn't it? <laughs> and it kind of makes you think twice about this story. Sure, like, sure looks like that creature would have no problem swallowing that swimmer whole. In fact, I discovered that the sperm whale has a gullet nine feet wide. Routinely swallows squid whole, twice the size of a human being. Now, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't expect there to be enough oxygen inside the belly of a whale or a fish to keep a person alive for three days. But, as we said last week, God, God could miraculously pro uh, provide for a person and see them through that kind of a circumstance. There are legendary accounts of sailors gone overboard, swallowed by whales, and living to tell about it, though none of them have ever been validated. The simple truth is we just don't know exactly what happened or how it happened. And so, as we suggested last week, Bible-believing Christians have found a variety of ways to read this story. Some will read it as a historical account in which the events and characters unfolded exactly as we read them. Some will read this more allegorically, that these characters and events are symbolic of other truths. And some see elements of both, real characters, real events, but embellished a certain amount to call attention to certain parts of the story. For instance, there are three days mentioned. Now, are those to be understood literally as three 24-hour periods? Or are they understood metaphorically to symbolically represent a sacred period of time? Or is it simply a convenient way of telling a story, three days? Now, a few people emailed me this week to ask, what is Grace Chapel's position on this story? <laughs> and the answer, simply, is that we don't take a position on this story. Our position is that the Bible, the entire Bible, is God's word, inspired and infallible. It's, it's not a question of whether the story is true or not. The entire Bible is true. The question is, how is this story meant to be read? How is any particular passage of Scripture meant to be read? So can we just pursue a rabbit trail for a moment, metaphorically speaking? because I think this is an important point. Take a look at this verse from the book of Proverbs. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, is that true? Well, proverbially, it's true. A proverb is a pithy statement of how things generally work in the world. Early bird gets the worm. 
This is a proverb. So proverbially, it's true. Generally speaking, hard work pays off. Is it scientifically true? Not really. We all know people who work very hard who aren't rich. Some may be right here in this room. So it's true when it's read the way it's supposed to be read. The key to interpreting any passage of Scripture is determine what kind of literature it is. So in the case of Jonah, is it history, is it allegory, or is it something in between? So we would encourage you, if you're interested, do some research. Consider the alternatives. Read it, ruminate on it, talk about it with a few other folks. But whatever you do, don't miss the point of the story. The, the, the story matters. The details of the story matter. It is meant to be read and applied as the story of a runaway prophet who was swallowed whole by a whale, preserved for three days, and delivered alive again. And there inside that whale had a transformative encounter with God. Now, if that sounds unlikely, the truth is a very similar experience happens to, has to happen to every one of us at some point in our journey. In chapter 2, we find out what happened inside that whale. Not just inside the whale, but more importantly, inside Jonah's heart. The entire chapter is a prayer, except for the first line and the last line, it's a prayer. An intimate, honest, soul-searching kind of a prayer. A prayer that each of us needs to pray at least once or twice or maybe many times when we're called on mission with God. So let's walk through the prayer together. Verse 1 and 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depth of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. Now notice that this prayer is being offered from inside the belly of the whale. And what's surprising is that it's a prayer of thanksgiving. However uncomfortable it must have been in that deep, dark place, Jonah realizes that he has been rescued. He is grateful to be alive. God has rescued him from certain death in a watery grave. And in his prayer, verse by verse, he describes his descent to this deep, dark place. Verse 3, you hurled me into the deep into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He remembers being tossed overboard, splashing into the water, sinking beneath the surface, fighting his way back to the top, sputtering, gasping for breath. Now keep in mind that for ancient Hebrews, the sea represented chaos. It was, a, it was a realm that was out of control, where evil and darkness went unchecked. Chaos was what was here before God spoke beauty and order into the universe. To the ancient hearers of this story, nothing was more terrifying, nothing was more lonely, no place was more God-forsaken than an open, raging sea. And that's where Jonah finds himself. Well, his descent continues in verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. 
You see, Jonah set out running away from God. Now he discerns that God is apparently abandoning him. God has jettisoned him from the ship. Been banished from his presence. He realizes those sailors were acting on God's behalf when they tossed him overboard, and he fears he may be lost forever. The descent continues. Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, if you're one of those people who doesn't let your feet touch the bottom of a lake or the ocean, you're really creeped out right now. I mean, we don't like to have seaweed wrapped around our feet, let alone around our heads. I mean, this is a moment of panic. Existential panic has set in. And then finally, in verse 6, he hits bottom. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He can't sink any low, low, lower. The, the weight of the water is crushing him. He feels trapped. He'll never escape. He's imprisoned in the depths of the sea, never to be released. What a frightening account this is. It occurred to me as I was reading through it and then working through it this week, I wonder if this is what it's like to die without God, without faith. I have many times been with people, believers, who were dying, dying with faith, dying with God. As difficult as that experience is, they've been able to face that moment with courage and peace and, and even hope, sensing that God was with them, knowing that he had a place prepared for them on the other side. But what's it like to die without God, without faith? To, to know that your life is ebbing away, never to return. I wonder if it's like this. I wonder if it's like sinking down lower and lower, helpless and hopeless, to a dark and lonely place from which there is no escape. It's an unsettling thought. But the truth is, hitting bottom isn't only about coming to the end of life. It's about coming to the end of ourselves. Coming to our wit's end. Coming to the limits of our strength and resources. Finding ourselves in such a deep hole that we can't climb our way out. Now, we use this expression, hitting bottom, most of the time in, to describe an addict or an alcoholic whose life has finally fallen apart. I mean, they've, they've, they've just lost everything. They've, they've, they've lost their jobs. They've lost their family. They've lost their health. They've lost their money. They've lost their reputation. They've sunk about as low as a person can sink. If they sink any lower, they'll be six feet under. That's hitting bottom. But as we learn from Jonah's prayer, hitting bottom isn't just a physical experience. It is a spiritual reality. It is coming to the end of our, of, our, of our resources, of our spiritual strength and wisdom and courage and faith. It's recognizing that left to ourselves, we are helpless and hopeless. We can't fix what's wrong with us inside. We can't work our way out of our troubles. We can't fight our way back to the top. We are like Humpty Dumpty, fallen, no one and nothing can put us back together again. As I'm sure you've figured out by now, hitting bottom isn't just something that happens to addicts and alcoholics. It happens to all of us 
in all kinds of ways. Now, sometimes hitting bottom is a result of sin in, in our lives, our own foolishness, our own recklessness. We, we make bad decisions. We go our way instead of God's way. We violate our own convictions. We hurt ourselves. We hurt others. And soon we've made such a mess of things, there's no way we can get our way out. Sometimes hitting bottom is a result of circumstances. Things just happen. Devastating illness, a, a tragic loss, bankruptcy, unemployment, family breakdown. We didn't do anything wrong. Things just happened. But, but we feel like we don't have the physical, emotional, spiritual resources to, to get our way back on top again. So sometimes hitting bottom is a result of sin. Sometimes it's a result of just circumstances. But sometimes hitting bottom is just something that happens to us can't point to any particular cause or reason. It just comes out of the blue. A sudden season of depression. A midlife crisis. A dark night of the soul. Now, I have shared with you before about my own dark night experience uh, some years ago. After a lifetime of walking with God and, and many years of fruitful ministry, all of a sudden, the bottom just dropped out of my faith. I felt far from God. I doubted things that I had believed and preached for my whole life. I was sick of my work. I was sick of the people I was working with. Now, there were no big sin issues in my life. Nothing bad had happened to us. On the contrary, things were going pretty well. I was doing all the things I had always done to stay on top of things, devotions and exercise and rest and family time, but it, it just wasn't working for me anymore. I tried to preach my way out of it. I tried to pray my way out of it. I tried to work my way out of it, but there was no getting out of it. I came to the place where I felt like I could not continue. I could not step into the pulpit one more Sunday and preach something that wasn't real to me. I was ready to quit the only life I'd ever known. Now, I don't know if you've ever come to a moment like that. I don't know if you've ever hit bottom the way we've been describing here this morning. Maybe you feel like you're headed that way now, falling away, spiraling downward, away from God, away from people, away from the life you hoped to be living. It's a frightening experience. But as we said at the beginning, sometimes on this journey of faith, we need to go through some deep waters. Sometimes. The best thing that can happen to a person or a marriage or a ministry is to hit bottom. If hitting bottom becomes a turning point. If in hitting bottom, you look up and call on God. And that's what happens here in the belly of the whale. Jonah's prayer continues in verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. In that deep place with the seaweed wrapped around his head and the weight of the ocean squeezing the very life of him, out of him, Jonah remembers God. And he, and he calls out to God. 
And the God who sent the storm now sends the whale to scoop his servant up, to give him some breathing space, to give him another chance. And there in the belly of that great fish, literally or metaphorically, Jonah answers God's call. Verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah realizes that whatever he was clinging to, his, his fear, his doubt, his anger, his stubbornness, his pride, his prejudice, whatever he was clinging to was a poor substitute for the good things that God wanted to do in him and through him. And so there in the belly of that fish, he once again offers his heart to God. What God asks, he will do. Where God sends, he will go. Now, he's still not happy about it, as we're going to find out a little bit later. Jonah still has some issues with God. And by the way, God still has some issues with Jonah. But at least they're talking to each other again. The relationship has been restored. And with that, verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Didn't think you'd hear that word in church, did you? <laughs> I don't know who was more relieved, actually, Jonah or the whale, <laughs> to have that irritating prophet out of there. But, but here's Jonah back on his feet again, ready to go on mission. So at this point in the story, we are prone to ask why. I mean, why does God go to all this trouble? The ship, the storm, the sailors, the deep, the whale. Why, why does God go through all this? Jonah's made it very clear he wants nothing to do with God, the mission, or the Ninevites. Why go to such great lengths? Well, we might say it's, it's because of God's, the mission. It's because of God's love for the Ninevites. As wicked as they are, he doesn't want them to be judged. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to be changed. He wants someone to go and bring his message to that city. So, so he needs a prophet. But surely, surely God could have found someone else. There had to be other prophets in Israel. Even a second or third stringer would probably have done a better job than this runaway named Jonah. Surely God could have found some other way to accomplish the mission. So it turns out the only real answer to the why question, why did God go to all this trouble, is that he loved Jonah. He loved Jonah. God cared as much about his prophet as he did about the mission. In fact, at that moment, maybe he cared more about his prophet because he deals with his prophet first. He calls on the very forces of nature he speaks through a crew of salty sailors. He commands a great beast of the earth to do his bidding. All this to save a stubborn, hard-hearted, runaway prophet. The answer to the why question is embedded right here in this verse 9 in one word. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. 
That word that we have translated grace in the Hebrew language, it's the word chesed. We've talked about it before, a rich and powerful word. Chesed is, is, is one part mercy, two parts faithfulness, and a wheelbarrow full of love. That's chesed. What agape is to the New Testament, chesed is to the Old Testament. The unconditional, unrelenting, irrepressible, indefatigable, all-consuming, all-pursuing love of God for his people. And this is where the, the vividness and the detail of the story, this, this crazy stuff about the fish, why this great fish? You know why? Because of God's great love. The great fish reminds us of God's great love. The story demonstrates the lengths to which God will go, the depths to which he will descend, the wideness of his mercy to save one stubborn runaway servant of his. So here's the lesson for this week. God wants your heart more than he wants your help. And so in love, he will pursue you even to the deepest place. God wants our heart more than he wants our help. And so he'll pursue us even to the deepest place. As eager as God was to do a great thing in Nineveh, he was just as eager to do a great thing in Jonah to give him a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And if that meant following Jonah to the very depths of the sea, to the very, the very edge of the grave, then God would go there. And God wants your heart too. As eager as he is for you to join him in his mission in this world, he is first of all eager to have your heart in right relationship with him. And so if you run, when you fall, he will follow you wherever you go. He will pursue you even to a deep place. He will follow you to the very grave itself to rescue you and bring you back. In fact, he's done that already, hasn't he? What does the New Testament tell us? The Son of God descended to earth made himself as low as a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, and was laid to rest in a dark tomb. The Son of God pursued us to the very gates of hell in order to snatch us and bring us back to him. The lengths to which God went to rescue Jonah are the lengths to which he will go to rescue you. Jesus said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection, the place of death becoming a place of deliverance. God wants your heart more than he wants your help, and so he will pursue you even to the deepest place. In fact, sometimes, sometimes he will even lead you into a deep place. I think that's what God was doing with me those many years ago. When I hit bottom, when I felt as though I couldn't continue, I went to the elders and said, I, I need to either quit or I need to take a break for a while. And they said, take a break. They gave me three months. 
And I spent the next three months in the belly of the whale, metaphorically speaking. And some of those days were dark days. They were lonely days. They were frightening days. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get it back again. The life I'd always known was over. But as the days and weeks went by, I found myself talking to God again, hearing his voice, sensing his presence. And over time, in ways I don't have time to describe, God and I reconnected. He got hold of my heart in a new and fresh way. And I reached a place where I was ready to return to the mission he had called me to. And a short time after that, he called me to a new mission here to Grace Chapel. And I really believe I would not have been ready to answer that call if I had not first gone through that deep place and gotten my heart right with him and ready for what's next. Dallas Willard says, in the end, what God gets from your ministry is you. As committed as God is to his mission in this world, as eager as he is for you to join him on that mission, his, his first priority is to have your heart. And that's true not just for pastors and prophets. That is true for every Christ follower called to live on mission. Sometimes we have to be brought low to a deep place before we're ready to go on mission with him. Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert before he was ready to lead the people out of Israel. Jeremiah thrown into a cistern so deep that his, his knees sank into the mud. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, having it out with Satan before he began his ministry. The women who followed Jesus, three days of despair when their master died until they received their commission to go and tell the world Christ is risen. The call to mission is a call to maturity. The mission is as much about forming and reforming our hearts as it is about getting something done in this world. Last Sunday after the message, I was just out in the lobby and I bumped into a Grace Chapel friend I hadn't talked to in a while and uh, he ended up sharing his story with me prompted by the story of Jonah and it was uh, such a powerful story illustrating the truths we're talking about last week and this week. I've invited him to come and share his story this morning. So would you welcome Ruben Rodriguez as he comes to share his story. My name is Ruben, and I'm original from Ecuador. Growing up, my father was the first evangelical pastor to begin a ministry in our small town where Christianity was nowhere to see it. Because of this, my brothers and sisters and I were bullied for years, and we are calling names such as son of devil. When we used to go to minister with, um, in the street with my dad, my father, People used to throw stone tomatoes or whatever they have to us. Daddy never quit. But the way, one of those people is now a pastor himself. This caused me to rebel against God to the point that by the age of 17, I no longer want to anything to do with my father's ministry or being known as a pastor's son. I decided that I was going to leave the country to find my own identity 
and freedom, even if they cost my life. In the 80s, I settled in Waltham, where I have some family living. I began to hang out with the wrong kind of people and live in a wild lifestyle. La vida loca. <laughs> the last thing I want to hear about was church or God. And that continued for two years. My parents kept writing me letters throughout those years with Bible verse and encouraged me to seek the Lord. But I would just throw them away. I was still very hurt. Even though I knew God exists, I was running away from him. By then, I ran into a storm. I was driving from work on a Friday night to party with some friends. It was raining out, and I was driving by myself. A drunk driver coming the other way at high speed hit my car head on. The impact was so strong, the engine on my car almost touched my seat. The steering wheel was bending forward, and I had broken the windshield with my head. Even though my car was being crashed, I was able to get out of my car dizzy, fell down a few times until I reached the other driver. I grabbed him by the neck, ready to punch him. When suddenly a police officer appeared who spoke in Spanish, which was weird to me, and told me, don't punch him because you will kill him. I let him go, and at a moment, I had no more strength on my body to stand anymore. The ambulance took, took me to the hospital, and the police officer told them that I had, uh, I had to be internal bleeding and have a severe head trauma. At the hospital, they did several exams, and miraculously, I didn't even have a scratch on my body. Since I live alone, and they will not let me leave the hospital for two days because they were afraid that my body will react from the accident, the nurse will let me sleep. So that night, all, that night, all I can do was lay down in bed and look it up in the ceiling. I begin to think and I, that I will be in the shoes of the driver that crashed me into me. I started to reflect on my life and how my parents had always prayed for me and how they had raised me. That night, with tears in my eyes, I asked God for forgiveness and promised him that as soon as I was able to go from the hospital, I will return to church. At the lowest point of my life, I looked to God and begin my journey back to him. Since then, I have been involved in many different ministries, and the Lord has given me the heart to speak to many others about him. Thank you. Thank you. If God can find an angry young man lying on his back in a hospital, if he can find a runaway prophet in the depths of the ocean, he can find and rescue you as well. I don't know where you are today. If you're on the top of your game, then enjoy it. Praise God for it. Make the most of it. There's nothing more satisfying than being on mission with God in a season of flourishing. If you're sinking down, if you're falling away, remember, you don't have to wait till you hit bottom to call on God. Don't fall any further. Don't, don't, don't let your heart get any harder. Turn towards him today. If you have hit bottom, 
then know that there's only one direction left to look, and that's up. And God is waiting for you there. Call on him, and he too can raise you to life again and get you back on mission with him. Let's pray. We thank you again, Lord, for this vivid, honest, unsettling, and yet hopeful story. Thank you for reminding us through Reuben's story of your great love for us that never gives up. Thank you for your call on each and all of our lives, individually and collectively. Thank you for the assurance that you can meet us today wherever each one of us might be and get us back where we need to be to draw our heart closer to yours. Meet us now in these moments as we reflect on these things and listen for your call in Jesus' name.